Book Two of Apuleius on the Doctrines of Plato by Apuleius. Translated by George Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Book Two on Moral Philosophy. One. The head of moral philosophy is, son Faustinus, that you may know by what means it is possible to arrive at a happy life. But previous to the other matters which are known to appertain to happiness, which is the end of good things, I will show what Plato thinks upon this point. Of good things, then, he thought that some were pre-eminently so, and in themselves the first but the rest he conceived were good through a participation. The first good things are God, the highest, and that mind which he calls nous. Secondly, the things which flow from the fountain of the first are the virtues of the mind, namely prudence, justice, modesty, and fortitude, but that amongst all these prudence is the superior, but as the second in number and power he laid down continence, to these succeeds justice, while fortitude is the fourth. In good things likewise he made this distinction, that some are of God, and in themselves the first, and are called simple goods. Others are of man, nor are the same good things thought to be so by all on which account the virtues of the mind are of God and simple, but those of man, which are goods in the opinion of some, are such as agree with the conveniences of the body, and are what we call external, which to the wise and those who live rationally and moderately are really good, but must needs be evils to the unwise and to those who are ignorant of their use. 2. The first good is the true and divine and best, and worthy to be loved and desired, and for the beauty of which the minds that are under the influence of reason have a longing under the guidance of nature, and are by the same power lit up to an ardent love for it. But as not all are able to obtain it, nor can possess the faculty of acquiring the first good, they are carried on to that which is of man. The second good is not common to many, nor is it in a similar manner a good to all. For the longing after, and the desire to do anything, is excited either by a true good, or by what seems to be a good. From whence, under the guidance of nature, there is a certain affinity between good things and that portion of the soul which agrees with reason. But, he considers that to be a good by accident which is united to the body and to things that come from without, and that he who is imbued by nature to follow what is good thinks he has been born not only for himself but for all men likewise, and that each one has been conceived not in an equal or similar manner but for the state, and next for those nearest to him, and then for the rest who are united to him by familiarity or acquaintance. 3. That a man is, he says, too, born, neither absolutely good from his stock, nor bad, but that his disposition inclines to both. That he has indeed 
some seeds of both, which are united to the origin of his birth, but which, by the discipline of education, ought to burst out into another part, and that the instructors of boys ought to have no greater care than to thoroughly imbue them with morals and instructions, so that they may wish to become lovers of virtues, and learn to rule, and be ruled by justice as their mistress. On which account the boys ought to be brought to this point, beside all the rest, that they may know that the things which are to be followed and avoided are honourable and dishonourable, that to the former belong pleasure and praise, to the latter disgrace and baseness, and that we ought with confidence to wish for the honourable things which are good. Of dispositions three kinds are classed by him, of which he calls one the superior and preeminent, another the most foul and the worst. The third, which is tempered moderately from both, he calls a mean. In this mean he desires to be partakers, the docile boy and the man, who is making a progress to moderation, and who is mild in his manner, and elegant, since he asserted that a mean of the same kind, called a third something, occurs in the case of virtues and vices, through which some acts are to be praised and others blamed. Thus, between knowledge of one kind firm, of another false, there is an obstinacy of mind united to a vanity. Between a chaste and a lustful life he interposed abstinence and intemperance, and has made shame and sluggishness as the means between fortitude and fear. Since of those persons whom he wished to appear moderate, neither the virtues were sincere, nor the vices sheer and untempered, but mixed up on this side and on that. 4. But the wickedness of a person, stained with all vices, he said was the worst, which he asserted took place when that portion which is the best, and rationable, and ought to rule the rest, was the slave of others, and when those leaders into vices, namely anger and lust, are the lords, while reason is sent under the yoke. From things likewise quite different, such as abundance and want, is wickedness made up. Nor, by the fault of an inequality alone, does he consider that wickedness goes halting, but that it falls upon a dissimilitude, for it could not agree with goodness, since it differs in so many ways from itself, and carries before it not an inequality, but an incongruity on which account he says that the three portions of the soul are pressed by three vices. Thus, against prudence, fights indocility, which not only introduces the destruction of science, but is adverse to the discipline of learning. Of this indocility we have received from him two kinds, one, unskillfulness and stupidity, of which it is found that unskillfulness is a foe to wisdom, but stupidity to prudence, another anger and boldness. Its companionship, indignation, follows, and unmovableness, called in Greek, argesia nu tis. For, so I would say, which not only extinguishes the excitement of anger, but fixes them down by a stupor not to be moved. To the feelings of desire he applies luxuriousness, 
that is, a longing after pleasures, and insatiable draughts of things desired, for enjoyment and possession. From this luxuriousness there flows avarice and wantonness, of which the former puts a restraint upon liberality, the latter, by living too immoderately, squanders the means of a patrimony. 5. But of a mind, the best, says Plato, virtue, is the bearing, that presents a noble figure, and which makes the person, on whom it is faithfully impressed, to be in accordance with himself, and tranquil, and consistent, not in words alone, but in deeds likewise, agreeing with himself, and the rest of mankind. And this is the more likely, should reason, seated on the throne of its kingdom, hold the appetites and passions ever in subjection, and under the rein, and they so obey it as to do their ministering tranquilly. He says, however, that virtue is of one form, because that which is good by its own nature has no need of assistance, but that it may be perfect it ought to be content with solitude. Nor is quality alone united to the natural disposition of virtue, but similitude likewise, for so does it agree with itself on every side, that it is fitted from itself and answers to itself. Hence he speaks of virtues as means, and the same too as extremes, not only because the former are from redundance and want, but because they are placed in the middle ground of virtues. For example, fortitude is surrounded on this side by boldness, on that by timidity. Now, boldness comes from the abundance of confidence, but fear from the fault of a deficient boldness. 6. Of virtues, some are perfect, others imperfect. Now, those are imperfect which, by the kindness of nature alone, come forth in all, or are furnished by discipline alone, or are taught by reason as a mistress. Those, therefore, that are made up of all, we say, are perfect. He denies, however, that imperfect virtues accompany themselves. But those which are perfect he conceives on that account especially to be inseparable and united to each other, because, for the person who has an uncommon natural disposition, if there be added industry, practice, and the discipline which reason the ruler of affairs has laid down, there will be left nothing that virtue cannot furnish. He divides all the virtues amongst the parts of the soul, and he calls that virtue which relies upon reason, and is the spectator and judge of all matters, prudence and wisdom, of which he wishes for wisdom to appear as the instruction of things divine and human, but prudence as the knowledge of understanding good and evil things, and those which are between the two. In that part, then, which is considered as given rather to anger, is the seat of fortitude, and the strength of the soul, and the nerves required for fulfilling those things, which are imposed upon us rather hardly by the rule of laws to be done. The third part of the mind belongs to desires and regrets, of which abstinence is necessarily the companion, whom he wishes to be the preserver of an agreement in those things that are naturally right and wrong in man. By this is lustfulness turned to mildness and moderation, and by the method and modesty of this voluptuary doings, he says, are restrained. 7. 
through these three parts of the soul he places a fourth virtue, namely justice, as dividing itself equally, and the cause of it, he says, is knowledge, in order that each portion may be obedient both to reason and moderation in performing its duty. This the demigod at one time calls justice, at another he includes it in the appellation of virtue in general, and addresses it likewise by the name of faithfulness. But when it is useful to the person by whom it is possessed, it is benevolence. But when it looks abroad and is the trustworthy spectator of utility to another, it has the name of justice. There is, too, that justice which obtains the fourth place in the ordinary division of virtues, which is coupled with religiousness, that is, in Greek, osiates, of which the latter, religiousness, is a slave devoted to the honor of the gods, and to the supplications in a divine right, while the former, justice, is the remedy and medicine of human society and concord. Now, for two equal reasons, justice rules over human utility, of which the first is the observance of equality in numbers and divisions, and in those matters which have been bargained for according to a contract. Add to this that it is the guardian of weights and measures, and of the common distribution of public property. The second reason is that relating to boundaries, and is a sharing proceeding from equity, so that a becoming ownership in lands may be assigned to each person, and the better portion be preserved for the good, but the worse for the bad. Add to this, let every one who is by nature and industry the best be preferred for honors and offices, but let the worst be in want of the light of dignity. Now, in assigning and preserving honor, that is the just measure on the part of him who is the aider of the good and the overthrower of the bad, that those things may ever be preeminent in the state which are about to be of service to all, but that vices, together with their authors, may lie low and be trodden down. 8. Which result will be the more easily obtained if we are supplied with two examples, one of a person divine, tranquil and happy, another of a person irreligious, inhuman, and deservedly detestable, so that he who is a stranger to, and averse from, a correct manner of living, would wish his faculties to be more like to those of the worst man, but the good person his to those of the divine and heavenly man. Hence there are with him two portions of the oratorical art, one of which is the discipline that contemplates what is good, and is tenacious of what is just, and fitted to, and agreeing with, the sect of that philosopher who wishes to appear a statesman. But the other is the science of flattering, the catcher at what is like the truth, and an experience brought together without any reason. For so we express, alagon tribane, irrational exercise, which wishes that to be received by persuasion, which it is unable to teach. Now this Plato has defined as dunamin to pethain, aneu to didaskin, a power to persuade without teaching, and to which he has given the name of the shadow, that is, the image of a portion of the statesman's art. But statesmanship, which he calls politikin, he wished to be so understood by us that we should consider it in the number of virtues, 
and that not only the person who is acting and occupied in the very administration of affairs should be viewed by it, but that things universally should be discerned by it, and that not only forethought is profitable to state affairs, but that all the statesman's feelings and design should be to render the situation of the state fortunate and happy. 9. Now, this same statesman's art has a care for the usefulness of the soul by two methods. One relates to law-giving, the other to law-courts. The former is similar to the exercise by which is acquired the beauty and strength of the soul, just as by exercise the health and beauty of the body is preserved. But that relating to law-courts is on a par with medicine, for it cures the diseases of the soul, as medicine does those of the body. These he calls disciplines, and professes that an attention to them brings a very great advantage, while their imitators are the arts of cookery and perfumery, but that the sophist's art, and the bland profession of the law, and the allurements of flattery, are disgraceful to those who profess them, useless to all, of which arts he unites that of the sophist to that of the cook. For, as the art of the cook sometimes catches the good opinion of the imprudent by its professing medical science, as if the things which it is doing are suited to the cure of disorders, so the art of the sophist, by imitating the manner of law courts, furnishes to fools a good opinion, as if that art were attending to justice, which it is clear is favoring iniquity. Whereas the professors of law imitate the art of the perfumer, for, while this wishes to be the remedy through which beauty and health are preserved in bodies, it not only diminishes the usefulness of the body, but breaks down its strength and powers, and changes the true color of the blood to slothfulness, so that, by imitating the science of law, pretends indeed to be able to increase virtue in souls, whereas it weakens whatever there is in them of natural industry. He thinks, moreover, that those virtues can be taught and studied which appertain to a rationable soul, that is to say, wisdom and prudence, and that those which in the place of a remedy offer a resistance to the portions of the soul that are corrupt, namely fortitude and continence, are rationable. Now the virtues before mentioned are held to be in the place of discipline. The rest, if they are perfect, he calls virtues but if only half perfect, he conceives they ought not indeed to be called disciplines, nor yet does he consider them to be entirely strangers to discipline. But justice, in that it is scattered amongst three parts of the soul, he imagines to be the art of living, and a discipline, and that is at one time teachable, and at another proceeds from use and experience. 10. Of good things, some, he asserts, are to be sought for the sake of themselves, as, for example, happiness, and a pleasure that is good, others, for not their own sake, as medicine, others, for the sake both of themselves and something else, as forethought and the rest of virtues, which we seek after, both for their own sake, as being in themselves excellent and honorable, and for the sake of something else, that is to say, of happiness, which is the fruit of virtue the most to be wished for. On this ground some bad things are to be avoided for the sake of themselves, others for the sake of other things, but the majority for the sake of themselves and of other things, as for example folly 
and vices of that kind, which are to be avoided, both for the sake of themselves and for the sake of those things, namely misery and unhappiness, which may arise from them. Of those things which are to be sought after, some, we say, are absolutely good, those, to wit, which, when they are present, always, and to all, bring with them advantages, as, for example, the virtues, of which happiness is the fruit. Others are a good to some persons, and not to all, nor always, as, for instance, strength, health, wealth, and whatever relate to the body and depend on fortune. In like manner, of those things too, which are to be declined, some appear always and to all to be evils, when they are a hurt or an obstacle, as, for instance, vices and misfortunes. Some are a hurt, and that too not always to some, as, for instance, sickness, want, and other things of a similar kind. 11. But that virtue is at liberty, and placed in ourselves, and is to be sought for with willingness, but that sins, although not less at liberty, and placed in ourselves, are not to be entered upon with willingness. For the beholder of virtue, when he shall have understood that it is thoroughly good and excels in kindness, will make for himself a road to it, and will think it ought to be pursued for its own sake. In like manner, how can he, who shall have perceived that vices not only bring disgrace upon reputation, but do a hurt in another manner, and are guilty of a fraud, be able to unite himself of his own accord to their fellowship. But if he proceeds to evil things of that kind, and believes that the use of them is advantageous to himself, through his being deceived by an error, and tempted by some image of good, he is, while ignorant of the truth, thrown headlong into ills. For you would vary from common opinion, when you are indeed not ignorant, what difference there is between poverty and wealth, and when these matters are placed easy to know, namely, that neither poverty brings honour, nor wealth baseness, you should prefer the want of things necessary for living to the abundance of means, and you would seem to be silly, and to pursue a conduct still more absurd than does the person who despises the health of the body by choosing in preference disease. 12. But that is an act of extreme madness, when he, who shall have beheld with the eyes of the soul the beauty of virtue, and shall have discovered by use and reason its utility, shall still, while not ignorant how much of disgrace and disadvantage he shall obtain from a participation in vices, be willing to give himself up to them. He says, too, that the health of the body, and strength, and freedom from pain, and other things of that kind, are extraneous, and that wealth likewise, and the rest of things, which we consider the advantages of fortune, are not to be called simply good. For if any one who possesses them withdraws himself from their use, they will be useless to him, and if any converts their use to wicked purposes, they will be seen to be even hurtful to him. But if any one abuses them, he will be exposed to vices, while he who possesses them is unable to hold them when he is dead. From hence it is inferred that these ought not to be called simply good things, nor ought those which sow diseases or poverty, and other things to be considered evils. For he, whose property is small, and who is moderate in his expenses, 
will perceive no mischief coming from it, while he who makes a right use of his poverty will not only find no disadvantage, but on the contrary will become superior in enduring the rest of evils with a better method. If, then, it is not contrary either to have poverty or to rule over it by reason, poverty is not by itself an evil. Pleasure, moreover, he says, is neither absolutely a good nor simply an evil, nor is that to be fled from which is honourable and proceeds not from things to be ashamed of, but from glorious doings. But that which nature herself spurns and is sought after with disgraceful delight, he considers ought to be avoided. Anxiety and labour, if they are natural and descend from virtue itself, and are undertaken for the performance of some remarkable act, he considered to be an object of desire, but that they are bad and detestable if they are produced contrary to nature for the sake of things the most base. Not only does he know that vices fall on the soul by an act of the will and come to bodies, but that there is a certain middle state, such as when sadness is absent, nor yet do we perceive that gladness is present. 13. Of the things which are in ourselves, the first good and worthy of all praise is to the person seeking a good virtue. On that account it ought to be called honourable, since we say that what is honourable is alone good, and what is base bad, and deservedly so, for what is base cannot be good. Friendship, he says, is a fellowship, and consists in a fellow-feeling, and is reciprocal, and brings the alternation of delight when two persons love equally in turn. This result takes place for the benefit of friendship, when a friend is desirous that he whom he loves should enjoy a prosperous state equally with himself. Now that equality does not take place otherwise than when a similarity in equal affection meets in both. For as like are united to like by an indissoluble connection, so those who are at variance are disunited amongst themselves, nor are they the friends of others. Now the corruptions of enmity are produced from malevolence through a dissimilarity in manners, and a difference in life, and sects, and opposite dispositions. There are, likewise, he says, other kinds of friendship, one part of which is produced for the sake of pleasure, and another for that of a close relationship. Now the love of a close relationship and of children is agreeable to nature, but that other feeling, which, abhorrent to the kindness of humanity, is called love, is a burning desire by the lighting up of which the lovers of the body, being caught through their lustfulness, imagine a person to exist wholly in that which they see and wish for. Such unhappy feelings, in the case of the soul, Plato forbids to be called by the name of friendship, because they are not mutual, nor can be reciprocated, so that what is loved may be loved in return, nor is there a constancy in them, and a length of time is wanting to them, and loves of that kind are put an end to by satiety and repentance. 14. Of loves of this kind Plato numbers three because there is one, divine, agreeing with a mind uncorrupted, and the method of virtue, and not to be repented of. 
another pertaining to a degenerate mind and to pleasure the most corrupt the third mixed up with both belonging to a mediocre disposition and of moderate desires but souls of a darker hue he says are impelled by a longing for the body and that their only aim is to enjoy the use of it and to soften down their heart by a pleasure and gratification of that kind but these are the acts of an elegant and well-educated mind to love passionately the souls of the good and to make them a study and to wish it done that they should indulge as much as possible in good pursuits and be rendered better and superior the mean between the two he says is formed of both so that they are not entirely void of bodily gratifications and yet are able to be caught by an elegant disposition of soul as then that love is inferred to be the most filthy and the least human and base not from the nature of things but from a bodily sickness and disease so it may be believed that the divine love comes into the minds of men when it is granted by the gift and kindness of the gods and by the breath of a celestial cupid there is too a third kind of love which we have mentioned as a mean it is brought together by the proximity of what is divine and earthly and since it is united by the connection of a joint state amongst like persons it is as being near to reason the divine one but the earthly as being united to baseness and the longing after pleasure fifteen of persons worthy of blame there are four kinds of which the first is of the seekers after honours the next is of the lovers of substance the third of the lovers of popular rule and the last of tyrannical power on which account that first vice comes upon the mind when the vigour of reason has become languid and that portion of the soul in which anger has the dominion becomes the superior and stronger now that which is called oligarchia oligarchy is produced in this way when on account of the worst food being given to that part of the soul which consists of desires not only are the seats of what is rationable and given to anger occupied but of that likewise which sharpen not necessary desires such a person as this plato has designated a gain-seeker and a hawk after money the popular quality exists when passions being let loose by indulgence burn not only with just desires but with those likewise which pervert from right the parties meeting with them and oppress with their own conditions both the soul that is susceptible of good counsel and the other too that is given rather to anger but tyrannical power is a life of luxury and full of lust which welded together out of pleasures endless and various and unlawful holds a dominion over the entire mind sixteen now the person who is the worst plato says is not only base and pernicious and a despiser of the gods and lives a life without moderation and inhuman and unsociable but agrees likewise with neither his neighbours nor himself and thus is at variance not only with other persons but himself likewise and is an enemy not to others only but likewise to himself and hence such a person is friendly neither to the good 
nor to any one at all, and not even to himself, but that he, whom no excess of wickedness can go beyond, appears to be the worst of all. He says, too, that such a person can never find a way for himself in the conduct of affairs, not merely on account of his ignorance, but because he knows not himself, and because thorough wickedness produces an unsettling in the mind by impeding that person's designs, when commenced and reflected on, and by not permitting any of those things to be done which he may wish. Hence, against a person, the worst, and most reprobate, not only do those vices, which are according to nature, produce a feeling of execration, such as envy is, and a delight in the misfortunes of others, but those likewise which nature does not reject, I mean pleasure, and sickness of mind, regret, love, pity, fear, shame, and anger. Now this takes place on that account, because an ill-regulated disposition has no moderation in whatever matter to which it rushes forward, and thus there is for it ever something deficient or redundant. Hence, too, the love of a man of this kind is depraved in its whole tenor, because it is not only eager from its unbridled lusts and insatiable thirst to swallow all kinds of pleasure, but because it is distracted in its judgment of beauty by an error without reason, through its being ignorant of true loveliness, and being a passionate admirer of the skin of the body, effete, enervated, and passing away, nor does it set a great value at least upon limbs colored by the sun, or rendered firm by exercise, but values rather those darkened by shade, or soft by sloth, and moulded with too much care. 17. That wickedness does not stalk abroad willingly is plain in many ways. For injuriousness, Plato says, is an ill-regulated suffering and sickness of the mind, from whence he holds it clear that men are not carried to it willingly. For who would, with his own will, take upon himself so much of evil as to carry knowingly crime and flagitiousness in the best portion of the mind. When, therefore, the possession of evil is taken by the unthinking, it is meet that its use and doings should be supported by the ignorant, and on that account it is a worse thing to hurt than to be hurt, because the hurt is in those things which are of less value, namely in those of the body, and external, which can be either diminished or perish by fraud, while the preferable are unhurt, that relate to the soul itself, while to hurt is a far worse act. From whence it can be understood that by this error a mischief is brought upon good souls, and that he hurts himself more, who desires the destruction of another, than he hurts him, against whom he plots things of such a kind. Since then to hurt another is of all evils the greatest, it is still much more grievous for him who does a hurt to depart with impunity, and it is more grievous and bitter than every punishment, if impunity is granted to a noxious person, and he does not suffer in the meantime a punishment from men, just as it is more grievous for a troop of most acute disorders to be in want of medicine, and to deceive medical men, and for those parts to be neither burnt nor cut off, 
by the pain of which the safety of the rest of the parts can be provided for. 18. Hence, as the best physicians do not apply healing hands to bodies despaired of and cried over as lost, in order that the attendance, which would do no good, may not prolong the period of pain, so it is better for those to die whose souls are stained by vices and cannot be cured by the medicine of wisdom. For Plato thinks that the man ought to be driven from life, by whom the study of living properly cannot be obtained from nature or his own exertions, or, if the love of life holds him fast, that he ought to be delivered over to the wise, by whose art at some time he may be turned to better things. And truly it is better for such a person to be ruled over, and not to have the power of ruling over others, and to be not a lord, but a slave himself, as being impotent over his own vices, and to be assigned to the power of others, after obtaining as his lot the office of obeying, rather than of commanding. He said, likewise, that the worse man is the greater reprobate, not on the sole ground that he is ever distracted by a choice of vices, and torn in pieces by the wave-swell of desires, but because the more he is desirous of more things, the more he seems to himself to be in want, and on that account to others likewise. For the things that are hoped and wished for arrive scarcely a few in number, and by the greatest trouble and to these succeeds the still more burning madness of desires. Nor by future evils only he is pained, but tortured likewise by the past and those in transit, all of which persons, it is manifest, can be drawn from evils of that kind by death alone. 19. But the preeminently good and the immoderately bad are very few and rather scarce, and, as he says, may be counted. But the majority are those who are neither clearly the best nor really the worst, but with, as it were, a medium in morals. And yet neither do the more excellent of them lay hold of all right things, nor do those who are to be blamed stumble in all. Of these the vices are not heavy, nor out of season, nor with too much of crime, whose basis is in a redundance or deficiency, to whom there is of approbation both an entirety and measure, and who, while they are taking a middle road between praise and blame, are constantly excited by the desire of undertaking matters of that kind, that at one time persons good and honourable invite them by reason, at another dishonourable gains and base pleasures attract them. With such men fidelity in friendship does not endure, and loves, not always incorrect, nor yet honourable, come into their minds. 20. A man, therefore, Plato says, cannot be perfectly wise, unless he excels the rest of men in disposition, and is complete in the arts, and in the parts of prudence, and has been imbued with them even from boyhood, and accustomed to deeds and words in accordance, while his soul has been cleansed and strained from the lees of pleasure, and abstinence and patience have been chosen with his whole soul, and learning and eloquence have proceeded from the knowledge of things. He, however, who has gone through these matters, and walked with a confident 
and secure step in the road of virtue, and has acquired a solid method of living, becomes on a sudden perfect, that is, he reaches on a sudden the extreme portions of time, past and future, and is in a certain manner intemporal. After this, when vices are shut out, and all things implanted and introduced, which conduce to a happy life, the wise man thinks correctly that he does not depend upon others, nor can anything be brought upon himself from others, but that all things are in his own hand, on which account he is neither elated in prosperity, nor does he become contracted by adversity, when he knows that he is so furnished with adornments that he can be separated from them by no violence. Such a person it behoves not only to inflict no injury, but even not to return it, for he does not consider that to be an act of contumely which a wicked man commits, but he considers that to be so which patience cannot firmly endure. By which law of nature let it be engraven on his mind that not one of those things which the rest of mankind conceive to be evils can do a hurt to a wise man. Indeed, Plato asserts that the wise man, relying on his conscience, will be secure and confident in the whole of life, both because he considers, by drawing himself to better reasons, that all things are accidents, and because he receives nothing with moroseness or difficulty, and persuades himself that his affairs belong to the immortal gods. The same person beholds the day of his death creeping on, neither unwillingly nor without hope, because he trusts in the immortality of the soul. For the soul of the wise man, when liberated from the bonds of the body, migrates back to the gods, and for the merits of a life past, rather purely and chastely, he does, by this very endeavour, conciliate himself to the condition of the gods. 21. To the same wise man he gives the name of the best, and he rightly considers him both good and prudent, whose sound plans agree with acts the most correct, and whose principles proceed from a reason for what is just. This wise man, he further says, is the most brave, since by the vigour of his mind he is prepared to endure all things. Hence it is, he says, that fortitude is the nerve and very neck of the soul, just as cowardice, he says, borders upon weakness. Him, too, he correctly considers the only wealthy man, since he alone appears to possess the riches of virtue, which are more precious than all treasures. Moreover, the wise man ought to appear the most wealthy indeed, since he alone is able to rule over wealth for necessary uses. For the rest of men, although they are flowing over with riches, seem nevertheless to be poor, because they either know not their use, or apply them to the worst purposes. For it is not the absence of money that gives birth to want, but the presence of immoderate desires. It behoves, then, the philosopher, if he will be in want of nothing, and the despiser of, and superior to, all those things, which men consider bitter to be born, to do nothing otherwise than to endeavour constantly to separate the soul from its fellowship with the body, and hence philosophy is to be deemed a desire for death, and a habit of dying. 22. It is meet for all good men to be friends amongst themselves, even if they are little known to each other, 
and they are to be considered friends by that power through which their manners and tenets agree, since like is not abhorrent from like. From hence it is clear that the fidelity of friendship can exist amongst the good alone. Now wisdom makes that young man a sedulous lover of good, who by the goodness of his disposition is rather ready to learn good arts. Nor will a deformity of body be able to drive away such a desire. For when the soul itself is pleasing, the whole man is loved, but when the body is desired, a man's worst part becomes agreeable to the heart. Justly, then, it is to be deemed that he who is acquainted with good persons will be desirous likewise of things of that kind. For he alone burns with good desires, who sees what is good with the eyes of the mind. This is to be wise. But because he who is ignorant of that must needs be a hater also, and not a friend of virtue, nor vainly is such a person a lover of disgraceful pleasures. But the wise man will not come, in the manner of a wild beast, to do something for the sake of some pleasure, unless there shall be at hand the honourable emoluments of virtue. The same person it behoves to live a life in this kind of pleasure, honourable and admirable, and full of praise and glory, and to be preferred to all the rest of men, not only for the sake of these things, but to enjoy likewise alone and always its pleasantness and security. Nor will he be pained when deprived of the dearest objects of affection, either because all things which tend to happiness depend on himself, or because the infliction of such pain is forbidden by the decree and law of right reason, or because, if he tortures himself on such a ground, or takes upon himself that sickness of mind for the sake of him who is dead, as if the person were in a worse part, for his own sake, because he grieves that he has been deprived of such an acquaintance. But neither for the sake of the dead ought lamentations to be indulged in, since we know that the party has suffered no evil, and, if he had been with good feelings, that he is added to the number of the better, nor for the sake of himself inasmuch as he places everything upon himself, nor by the absence of anything can he be in want of virtue, of which he claims for himself the perpetual possession. The wise man, therefore, will not be sad. 23. The aim, then, of wisdom is that the wise man may by his merits be carried up to God, and this is about to be all his study, says Plato, that he may by the emulation of his life, approach to the doings of the gods. Now, this will be able to happen to him if he shows himself a man perfectly just, pious, and prudent, from whence, not only in the knowledge of looking forward, but in the labour of acting, it is fitting for him to follow those things which are approved of by gods and men. Since the highest of the gods not only thinks upon all this universe through the reasoning of his reflections, but undertakes the first, the middle, and the last, and regulates what has been discovered thoroughly by the universality and constancy of a provident arrangement. Moreover, he says that the person appears to be happy to all to whom good is supplied, and who knows in what manner he ought to be free from vices. Now, one kind of happiness is when we protect by the presence of our talents what we are doing, 
another when nothing is wanting to the perfection of life and we are content with the mere contemplation of it now of each kind of happiness the source flows from virtue but for the adornment of the genial place or virtue we need none of these aids from without which we deem to be good but for the uses of ordinary life there is a need of the care of the body and of the protection of these things which come from without yet however in such wise that they may become better by virtue and by its assistance be united to the advantages of happiness without which they are least of all to be held in the place of good things nor is it in vain that virtue alone can make persons most happy since without it happiness cannot be found from other prosperous affairs since we say that the wise man is a foot-follower and imitator of god and we fancy that he does follow the deity for this does the saying mean hepu theo follow god now not only does it behove him while he inhabits this life to speak words worthy of the gods and not to do those acts which are displeasing to their majesty but at that time likewise when he is leaving the body which he will not do against the will of god for though the power over death is in his hand and though he knows that by leaving the things of earth he shall obtain what are better still he ought not to bring death upon himself unless the divine law shall decree that he must of necessity suffer it and if the adornments of his previously past life do him honour still it behoves him to be more honourable and the lover of a favourable report when careless of the life of his posterity he permits his soul to pass to immortality and anticipates because he has lived piously that it will inhabit the places of the blessed and mingle with the choirs of the gods and demigods twenty four respecting the constitution of states and the preservation of commonwealths to be ruled over plato thus ordains at the very commencement he defines the form of a state after this fashion a state is the union of very many persons amongst themselves where some are rulers others inferiors bringing when united aid and assistance to each other in turn and regulating their duties by the same and correct laws and a state would be one like a villa under the same walls if the minds of the inhabitants are accustomed to like and dislike the same things on which account we must persuade the founders of commonwealths that they increase their own people to that point of places in such a way that all may be known to the same ruler and not unknown to each other for thus it will happen that all will be of one mind and be willing for justice to be done to them but a great and healthy state it does not behove to depend on the multitude of its inhabitants and on their great strength for plato thinks that not the power of the body nor of money collected for the dominion of the many is to be valued with a bad heart and impotence but when men adorned with all virtues and all the inhabitants founded on laws obey a common decree but the rest of states which are not constituted after this model he did not deem to be healthy but were commonwealths filthy and swelling with disorders those however he said were founded on reason 
which were arranged after the manner of the soul, so that the best portion which excels in wisdom and prudence may rule over the multitude, and, as that has the care of the whole body, so the beloved of prudence may defend the things advantageous to the state in general. And let fortitude likewise the second portion of virtue, as it chastises and restrains the feeling of desire by its road, be vigilant in the state. And in the place of watchers by day, let the youth become soldiers for the benefit of all. But let the discipline of a superior counsel bridle, restrain, and if requisite, break down the restless and untamed, and on that account the worst of citizens. But that third part of the soul, the seat of desires, he considers on a par with the common people and land-tillers, which he thinks is to be supported for its moderate usefulness. He denies, however, that a commonwealth can stand unless he who rules possesses a desire for wisdom, or unless he is chosen as the ruler who, it is agreed amongst all, is the most wise. 25. He says, moreover, that all the citizens should be imbued with morality, so that there may be no desire of possessing gold and silver in those to whose guardianship and good faith the commonwealth is entrusted, and that they may not seek private wealth under the guise of its being public, and that hospitality may not take place of such a kind that, while the door is not open to others, they may so take care of food and living for themselves, as to waste on common feasts the money they may receive from those whom they protect. Marriages, too, he says, are not to be entered into individually, but are to be common through the wise men of the states and magistrates appointed to that business by lot, arranging in a public manner the betrothals for marriages of that kind, and taking especial care that persons be not united unequal to or unlike each other. With these is connected a useful and necessary confusion, so that through the bringing up of children, unknown as yet, being mixed together, there is produced a difficulty of recognition by parents. For, while they do not know their own, they believe all, whom they may see of that age, to be their own, and all become, as it were, the parents of all the children in common. Of these marriages there is sought at a proper time the union, of which he believes the fidelity will be firm, if the number of the days accords with the harmony of music, while they, who are born of such marriages, will be imbued with fitting studies and taught by the best instructors in the common master hall of the preceptors, and this too, not merely those of the male sex, but of the female likewise, whom Plato wishes to be united in all arts that are thought to be peculiar to men, and even in those of war, since to both there is the same power as their nature is one. He says, too, that a state of this kind has no need of laws laid down from without, for being founded on the rules of prudence, and on that kind of institutions and manners, of which mention has been made, it does not require other laws. And this commonwealth he contends to have been formed by himself, as a faint representation of the truth, for the sake of an example. 26. There is likewise another commonwealth built up by him sufficiently just, and the best indeed, in a certain appearance, and by way of an example, and not, as the former is, without proofs, 
but with some groundwork. In this, after seeking the principles of the origin of a state and its foundations, he discusses, not in his own name, its situation and advantages, and he proceeds to the point as to how a civil governor, after obtaining a place of that kind, and an assembly of many persons, ought, according to the nature of things present, and of persons coming together, to build up a state full of good laws and of good morals. In this, too, he wishes the same bringing up of children and the same discipline in arts to be adopted. But in the case of marriages and births and patrimonies, he swerves from the rules laid down for the former commonwealth by making marriages an affair of individuals, and the business of the suitors themselves private. But though the parties in contracting a marriage ought to take counsel from their own wishes, yet he decrees that the matter, as belonging to public good, ought to be looked into by the chiefs of the state in general. Wherefore, let not the rich refuse a marriage with their inferiors, and let those in poverty obtain an union with the rich. And, should there be an agreement in the strength of property, still different dispositions are to be mixed together, so that a quiet woman may be joined to a passionate man, and to a mild man may be united a rather excitable woman, in order that by such remedies and the fruits of living together the offspring formed out of differing natures may coalesce by a better produce of manners, and so the state be increased by the means of families put together. Children, too, conceived in the seed-bed of dissimilar manners, when drawing in the fashion of a likeness of both, there will be wanting in them neither vigour in carrying on affairs, nor counsel in surveying them, but they are to be instructed according as the parents may determine. Individuals, too, may have houses and private property, as they may be able, which, however, he does not permit to be increased by avarice, or wasted by luxury, or deserted through negligence. And for this state he orders laws to be promulgated, and he exhorts the framer of laws, when he has an idea of doing such a thing, to direct his contemplation to virtue. 27. As regards the mode of government, he considers that to be useful which is formed by the mixture of three kinds, for he does not think that the mere form of government, either by the upper orders or of the mob, is by itself useful, nor does he leave the faults of rulers unpunished, but he determines that a reason for ruling exists, rather with those who are the superior in power, and other conditions of public affairs are thought to be defined by him which have a leaning towards correct morals, and to the ruler over the commonwealth which he wishes to stand fast by the correction of errors, he gives an order that he first fill up the laws remaining incomplete, and that he desire the laws to be corrected that are wrong, and then that he turn the teachings which are corrupting the good of the state to a better account, from which if the depraved masses cannot be turned aside by advice and persuasion, they must be drawn from the course they have commenced by force, and without a show of favour to any one. He describes, too, how in an active state the whole mass conducts itself when led by goodness and justice. For such persons will take to their arms their nearest relations, will guard their honours, drive off intemperance, restrain injustice, and give to modesty 
and the other ornaments of life the greatest honors nor let a multitude rashly fly together to the constitutions of commonwealths of that kind except those who have been brought up under the best laws and superior institutions and are moderate towards others and agreeing amongst themselves twenty eight of citizens worthy to be blamed there are four kinds one is of those who are the chiefs in honour another is of the few with whom the power over affairs rests the third is of the rule of all the last of that of a tyrant now the first kind he says is produced then when the more prudent persons are driven from the state by seditious magistrates and the power is transferred to these who are strong in hand merely and when not those who could conduct affairs with milder counsels obtain the means of ruling but those who are turbulent and violent but the state of the few is obtained when many persons poor and criminal and at the same time lying under the impotence of the wealthy few give themselves up and permit and when all the power of government not good morals but riches have obtained the popular faction is strengthened when the mass without wealth does by its strength hold out against the means of the rich and the law is at the bidding of the people promulgated that it is lawful for all to obtain honours equally after this there arises then the individual head of that tyranny when he who shall have broken through the laws through his contempt for them shall make an attack upon the government after being fitted for it by a similar conspiracy amongst the lawless and ordain subsequently that the whole mass of citizens are to obey his desires and wishes and to regulate their obsequiousness by such an aim end of section twenty eight and end of book two